Hi there, and welcome to the LGBTQ Plus STEMcast, a podcast where we interview LGBTQ Plus scientists from different STEM fields from all over the world. I'm your host, Annabelle Gong, and in today's episode, we will be chatting with Jose Henriquez. Jose is a medical student at the University of Central del Caribe in Puerto Rico, and will soon be starting his residency at the Cambridge Health Alliance and Harvard Medical School Internal Medicine Program. I just want to send my congratulations to Jose, as this is really recent news since our interview, and I hope that you join me in sending congratulations to him as well. Within this episode, there is mention of suicide from about 9 minutes to 14 minutes and 46 seconds. I will be giving a disclaimer right before we begin talking about the subject and will let you know when talking about the subject is over. Within this episode, we will also be talking about Jose's experiences leading up to med school, the Trevor Project, and gay rugby. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Jose. Welcome to the show. Before we get started, how about you give us a little introduction about yourself? Thank you, Annabelle. Hello, everybody. My name is Jose Henriquez, and I am from Puerto Rico, born and raised. I am currently a non-traditional fourth-year uh, medical student at the University of Central del Caribe in Puerto Rico. Awesome. And so how did you get into medicine? Like, what's the story behind that? Well, it took a little time before I got into medicine. You know, growing up, I was always the kid that did really well in school and enjoyed getting an education and going to class. So when the time came to actually choose a career, which is sort of like midway through your college experience, I was a little more distracted by the idea of wanting to do other things that doesn't necessarily pertain to choosing a career. There were things that I personally wanted to explore, and I felt that I owe it to myself to to figure out what that was. At the moment, I didn't know exactly what I was looking for. I just knew personally, like there was something in me that I was saying that there's a path for you that you can forge for yourself, and it's going to take some time, but it'll definitely get you to where you are. And so I did. And while I was doing that, during taking that gap between college and medical school, it was where I did a, a bunch of experiences that to a person perhaps writing my application for, for a residency would think this person is either not driven or he's just like all over the place. But in the end, I certainly found exactly what I was looking for. It was, and I was looking for a career that would allow me to do all the things that I got to do during that time, you know, to be an advocate, to be uh, a support, to continue exercising my intellectual capacity and my curiosity for sciences. And, you know, I devoted a significant amount of time talking to people in the field. And I was able to find out that medicine was indeed an opportunity for me to explore all of those things. So that's basically how I got into medicine. I sort of like created my own path to medicine, I would say. Nice, nice. So you said that you took a gap year between college and now med school. What were the things that you did during that gap year? Well, it's more like a gap decade. (laughs) (laughs) So I graduated college in 2008 here in Puerto Rico. I actually did my first two years of college in New York City. I was very sheltered then, you know, I was living in my own little bubble, even in New York City. And then halfway through that, I decided to move back to Puerto Rico for many reasons that I don't think are important now because it was just things that I was deciding then in my own ignorance. But anywho, so I came back to Puerto Rico. I finished my college degree in in general sciences. And then that's when the itch started all over again. It's like, do I really want to stay here? What is it that I want to do? I don't know. And I got this opportunity. I actually applied for an opportunity to do volunteering at a hospital in New York City. And it was going to be like a three-month sort of you know, volunteering experience. 
So I, I bought a one-way ticket um, to go to New York City uh, and to stay at my aunt's house in the meantime. And when I got there, you know, uh, even before starting the experience that I was set to do, I sort of like started exploring the city myself and I was really liking it. I was really, I loved the idea of me being by myself, just walking around and figuring things out on my own. So I immediately got this sense of, I need to do this. And so in my own attempt to actually become financially independent from my parents and be able to do the things that I wanted and, you know, stay there for a longer period of time, I decided to start looking for a job. So, you know, I was a recent college grad with very little experience. And I, I said to myself, where am I going to find a job here in New York City? I mean, this is like, this is where all the good people with the great experiences come to find work to become, you know, successful. But I was fortunate that I started applying for jobs and this lab at Columbia University Medical Center in Washington Heights that focused on biosurveillance and microbe surveillance basically hired me and gave me the chance to actually work at the forefront of viral discovery. And it was an incredible experience because it's, it's something that I was not personally seeking. Like I, I wasn't seeking to become a scientist, nor I was seeking to become a virologist. But it was there. It was the opportunity that I was given. It was. It came very quick. So I said yes. And that job, actually, I ended up doing that job for the next four years. I was able to do a really cool things. I got to do viral sequencing. I actually got to work with coronavirus. I also got to work during the H1N1 outbreak back in 2009. So it exposed me to the fascinating and competitive field of scientific investigation. But while I was doing that, I was also, you know, having some instances where I had to go to the medical center and like, you know, get a little bit of exposure into the clinical experience. And that's something that really caught my attention. And that's when I started sort of asking myself whether I wanted to become a scientist and do bench work for the rest of my life. And maybe the social person that I am, I felt like being with patients would have been a bit more rewarding in the end. So soon after that, I started talking to medical students at Columbia University and one of them actually put me in contact with this clinic that they have that it's run by the students there where they serve underserved populations, particularly immigrants and uninsured. And I said, yes. And I started working as an interpreter. So I was basically translating information, Spanish, for the medical team because most of the patients around Washington Heights, they were mostly Dominican, Central American, and they all speak Spanish. So I was there sort of like helping, you know, deliver the information. And then as soon after that, the people that actually brought me to the clinic, they really liked the way that it worked. So it just kept growing from there. And I ended up becoming part of the leadership of that clinic. And it was sort of like, I like to say it was my school. It was essentially what made me realize what my life as a medical student would be like. And it made me realize how can I use my skills and my talents and my interests in order to do the job. And it sold me like it was something that I really wanted to do. And that's when... I got serious about pursuing a career in medicine, and then I went back to school at Columbia to do my post-bac pre-med program to complete all my requirements for medical school, and then everything just trickled down from there. You know, I took my MCAT and then application process, and then, you know, within a few years, I was in medical school back home in Puerto Rico. Nice. That's a very winding but purposeful <laughs> journey, I feel like. <laughs> Where do you ultimately want to end up then? I know that you want to become like a doctor, but is there anything that you're specifically passionate about that you want to do within the medical field? Certainly. So one of the things that I say to myself, especially now that I'm applying for residency positions in internal medicine, is that I need to be able to explore and do the things that I did before going into medicine, because these were the things that made me fall in love with medicine in the first place, right? So obviously I want to be able to do the clinical work and uh, me being 
you know, an academic loving person, I really would like to stay in the academic field. So I definitely see myself working at a hospital level in the academic setting and becoming not just a clinical person, but also an educator and a mentor for future generations of physicians. But I also want to, you know, interact with the community that surrounds the place where I work and be able to provide back to the communities and give to those who are most vulnerable and continue doing the advocacy LGBTQ work that I've been doing, whether it be through the academic institution or through my own making or through other organizations, but just being able to do all those things uh, will be sort of like, I like to think my happy place. And obviously I will be lying if I'd say that I would not like to specialize in infectious diseases. That's always uh, sitting in the back of my head. And it's something that I feel very strongly about because most of my background in science, you know, revolves around uh, infectious diseases. So I certainly have that, you know, at the very top of my priorities. Once I get through residency, of course, that will be something to consider in the future years. Yeah, definitely. So what kind of LGBTQ plus outreach have you currently done or in the past have done? Just to give a little brief of history, I was always the kid in high school that was targeted, you know, people noticed or perceived that I was different. Uh, Maybe the things that I liked also were different to my other classmates then. And I was never out to anybody but to myself. And I knew very early, like probably junior high, that there was something different about me. And instead of complaining or feeling victimized by it. I actually rejoiced in the fact that it was different. And that gave me so much drive because it was like, this is something that is setting me apart from everyone else who's behaving so (laughs) generically, you know, equal. And it was something that for me, like it made me strive for some reason. Like I just went the opposite direction. And I know that I say this, but I also say this with, you know, being sensible to others that don't have that kind of mentality growing up and, you know, being pointed at and being bullied, you know, it's really hard. So I took it upon myself that, you know, when the time came to to actually help others, to be able to use my experience to empower others in the same situation. So that's my little background story. The following conversation has mentions of suicide. If you are sensitive to this content, you may skip ahead to 14 minutes and 46 seconds. And then when I got to New York, I was already living by myself. I was working at, at the Center for Infection and Immunity at Columbia. And Tyler Clemente, the Rutgers University student that committed suicide by jumping off of the George Washington Bridge happened around that time. And he was sort of like the catalyst for me to get up and do something. I was really saddened by this story. And what really made me realize what I wanted to do, it was the fact what I just said is that, you know, this is a kid who couldn't handle the pressure. This is a kid who struggled and just didn't see a way out. And when I was growing up, you know, I did struggle. I hated going to school, not because I hated going to class. For me, every day it felt like I had to defend myself every single time. But I had that drive for some reason in me. And I was able to just continue to do it and not feel broken down by the people who were trying to, you know, bully me or point fingers at me. So I knew that I had something to share. That could help somebody else. And that's when I started to get interested in what can I do to help others in, in this situation. And I remember, I think, during the, the news report about Trevor Clemente, I think the ad for Trevor Project came up. So I, I went onto the website. I still had the, some information. They had like a form whether you, if you wanted to volunteer with them and what kind of things you were interested in doing. So I did the whole thing. And then I can't remember the time frame, but I got a call back. So I was invited to be part of the new class of counselors. And they had designed this like two weekend boot camp of 
learning about everything LGBTQ and also about suicide prevention and, you know, communication skills and how to help people, you know, with crisis and de-escalate emotional crisis and all these things that, to me back then, it was all new. Like, I didn't know that, you know, I worked in customer service, but I never had to be in a position where I had to help people with, you know, with communication skills and be able to somehow persuade them back to safety. So uh, it was a little challenging for me at times. And, you know, when we had to do the mock discussions over the phone, people that were, you know, training us, I struggled a little bit because I had a hard time trying to use the, the right wording and the right tone. And the most important thing is just with security and confidence, because that's exactly what they need to hear from that side of the phone call is that they want to make sure that the people that they're talking to are strong enough for them to feel supported. But like all things in my life, I just kept doing it. I kept moving forward. I didn't look back and, and you know, I got better every single time. And then, you know, after that, I was doing um, about two shifts every month. And each shift was about four hours each. And yeah, I did that for about a year and a half before I had to, you know, commit to other things professionally. Academically, that kept me from being able to commit to Trevor in the long run. So for listeners who don't really know what the Trevor Project is, the Trevor Project is a suicide prevention hotline specifically directed at LGBTQ plus youth. So since it is directed towards LGBTQ plus folks, did you take anything away while you were volunteering with the Trevor Project for yourself as you were trying to come out to other people? Certainly. And I'm glad you asked this question because I think Tyler Clemente motivated me to join the Torah Project. But I think in the end, I was also seeking, me personally, that sort of community and acceptance. Because even up to that point, I was rarely engaging with, you know, anything that had to do with LGBTQ. You know, I kept myself away from everything. Not because I was shameful. It was because I didn't know what lied on the other end. And I was afraid, I guess, a little bit. Um, so I guess I was trying to find the perfect timing, you would say, for me to basically immerse myself in the community. And I think Trevor Project just gave me that head start. And so while doing the training and actually doing the counseling, I got to learn a lot about myself speaking with these young individuals who were struggling. You would think that, you know, because they're suffering and they're considering suicide, that they might be weak. But I would think it's completely the opposite. I saw myself as the weak one. Here you had this, you know, young individuals calling in, talking openly about their struggles, albeit it was anonymous, but still, like, it takes a lot of courage to actually come up to a stranger and say, I feel like I want to kill myself because I don't feel loved. I don't feel accepted for who I am. I don't feel like I fit in. And I had all those feelings. I was not thinking about suicide, but I, I had this, this fear of not fitting in. I had this fear of not being accepted. And so their stories, they were unique, but I saw them as very brave individuals that were just, just needed that support, you know, to get them through the crisis in that moment. And then I started to think about my own problems and my own situations and how minuscule they were to compare to these callers. You know, some of them were being neglected by the families. Some of them were thrown out of their houses. They were homeless. The fact that I had this opportunity to help them through the process and to provide them with information and resources to bring them to safety, to provide them with a place to stay, it was a beautiful thing. And it was almost like I was giving, you know, my experiences to empower them, but they were giving me so much more. They were giving me the perspective that being open about who you are, it's a good thing. And, you know, whoever does not want to be part of that, then they shouldn't be a part of that. The content warning is now over. You should be able to, you know, share your experience with the people that actually care for you, they nurture you, and they support you. 
And so that's exactly what I did. And, you know, around that time, I remember it was during lunch break, I think one time at work, I was sitting with two friends of mine, two coworkers and friends of mine, and we were just having lunch. And then this gorgeous, beautiful man was walking by like on the street and I saw him through the window. And I said out loud, I was like, oh my God, like I could totally marry that guy like a second. And then both of our friends looked at me and they opened their eyes like very wide open and they looked at me and it's like, what did, you, what did you just say? And then I said, you know what? I think, I think it's pretty obvious and I think we all know the situation. The only difference now is that from now on, I'm gonna be talking about it openly if that's okay with you. And they started laughing and they, they started tearing up for me. And then they said, we've been wanting for you to, to do that for the longest time so that we can actually share things with you. Because it's like, here we are people that, that I trusted, you know, and we had to measure the things that we said, even though they were my friends. And, and that's not the kind of friendship I want. I want a friendship that, you know, we are able to tell, every, you know, each other everything. So when that happened, it was like an emotional thing, not because I had come out. It was because it was sort of like, oh, finally, this relief of now can we just like talk about everything openly? And that's how it happened. And from then on, like every single friend that I talked to, it wasn't like, hey, just so you know, I'm out. It was more like very subtle. It was like watching a movie or listening to something. I would say like, oh my God, this guy is so cute. And then they would be like, uh, so is this like a thing now? Like, are you out? And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to let it go. This is how it's going to be from now on. And, you know, for me, the struggle that I had, it was not coming out necessarily. It was basically saying that all these people that, you know, pointed fingers at me when I was growing up and after that, it's just basically saying you were right. And I, I really struggle with that because I just, hate giving in to like people and what everybody has to say so that was my struggle and, and you, as you can tell it was not as, as big of an issue as you know with the callers that I, I had to talk to at Trevor Project but I got over it very quickly and thankfully thanks to their stories and yeah that's exactly what I derived from this experience which is you know it, it gave me the personality that I am today which I'm very proud of. That's incredible. And yeah, I only imagine that, I mean, this project can be both fulfilling in a way that you're helping people, but also to yourself, especially if you identify as LGBTQ+. Do you plan on continuing your outreach with the project again? I know that you're not really doing it right now, but do you plan on helping out again in the future? Yeah, I actually, so when I started applying for residency programs, Obviously, location is very important to me because being an LGBTQ person and wanting to be able to continue my advocacy work, I needed to be in places where LGBTQ is paramount. And obviously, that you know, there are some corners in the country of the United States that we are not where we see. So obviously, I will not be considering practicing medicine there. So I started applying to you know the big cities, and obviously, I applied to New York because I have a history with New York because I know the city very well because there are really good training programs there, but also because Trevor Project is actually there. So Trevor Project, I believe, has currently two headquarters, one's in New York City and one's in Los Angeles. So when this whole season of applications started, I actually started looking back into Trevor Project. And what I love about it now is that they have email and chat counseling services. So you get to do that from anywhere in the country. So it doesn't matter where I land for my specialty training, I know that there's always an opportunity open for me to apply and, and to be able to go back to, to doing my Trevor Project uh, volunteering. So I'm definitely considering it. If I get to go to Los Angeles or New York, I will definitely go back to being a phone 
counselor. So yeah, so that's also right next to infectious diseases subspecialty is going back to the tour project and be able to, now that I have this, you know, experience of communication skills, being able to talk to patients and this training and all this knowledge about suicide that I got to learn throughout medical school, now I'm able to actually apply that more effectively. So, and be of a better support for the callers. Yeah, I think that'd be so cool if you could be a part of it in any way possible. And that's really awesome to know that they have email and chat counseling now. So how can people who are listening, if they're interested, get involved with volunteering with the Trevor Project? So the Trevor Project is, they, they made it, make it very easy for you to reach out to them. I will just go to the website, Google the Trevor Project, and there's a volunteer section where you can actually apply for positions for volunteering. You have to fill out a form, put in your information. They might ask you for your background in education or training perhaps, and they will give you a call and then they will let you know where do they feel you might fit in and where they, they think that you'd be a good asset. And then it, they just take it from there. And then in my experience back then, I mean, it's been close to 10 years now. That's how it happened. I fill out the information and within weeks I, I got a call back and, and then, yeah, I went for the training and, and that was it. I think you have to go through the training. Of course, it's very important. That's very important because you have to be able to have the skills in order to deal with this population. Yeah, for sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how else has your LGBTQ plus identity crossed over in what you do? I know we talked briefly about medicine and the Trevor Project, but are there any other aspects of your life where that intersects with your hobbies? Yes, so the thing about me is I'm a little chunky, short, five six kind of guy. <laughs> and so when I first moved to New York City, I got really active. I was doing like boot camp twice a day. I was dieting and, you know, I, I shed a few pounds and I was very proud of myself for doing that. And I kept it for most of the time. But then when I went back to do my pre-med requirements at Columbia, you know, I was more busy studying, uh, trying to keep up with the pace because, you know, it's a very competitive program. And then I found myself, you know, stress eating. So most of the weight that I had shed then I actually gained back. And it was a little frustrating, but at the same time, you know, I like to stay active, but I just hated the idea of just committing back to like that previous routine and then going to the gym every time. It just felt like a rat race. And, you know, I'm an Aries and we get bored very easily. So that's part of our nature, unfortunately. So I needed to do something that would keep me active, but also gave me a sense of community, a sense of responsibility to others, because in return, what I get is discipline. I develop this discipline that, you know, if I commit to going to practice, then I'm going to be there for practice and help me organize myself. So I think it was in my last year of the work that I was doing at the Infectious Diseases Lab, there was a girl who I adore. She's actually now a physician. Back then, she was actually the captain of the rugby club team at Columbia University. She was the female captain of the female club. And she said, have you considered, like, rugby like you know if you play a sport then you can have that camaraderie that you're looking for but also like you can stay active and it's a lot of fun and I've never been the sports kid even growing up like I was always you know at home playing video games I was never the kid that would go out and and play sports the closest I got was swimming and that's a very individual sport so I wasn't very interested in sports but she caught my attention with that and I started looking for teams in New York City, you know, doing some browsing on the web. 
And then I found three teams that I liked. One of them actually replied to me very quickly. So I ended up going to that practice. So when I get there, you know, I don't know anything about the sport. So I'm, I'm starting to learn the process. And then I learned that rugby is one of the toughest sports out there. But these people were playing it for many years and they seemed fine. So I knew that if I had a good technique that, you know, it would feel safe and then it would be fun. So I started playing with them. And then there was something about that team that was, I would say, different. And forgive me if I'm sounding a little stereotypical, but when I was listening to the guys talk out loud, you know, some of them have, you know, mannerisms and some of them had lists and, you know, things that I, I, I started to become familiar with now that, I, you know, I was out and about and like, you know, immersing myself into the gay community. And then one of the people who actually is, is a very dear friend of mine, I came up to him and I asked, and he said, yeah, this is, this is the Gotham Knights Rugby Club. And we are gay inclusive. We are the only gay inclusive rugby team in the tri-state area. And we played with other gay teams, you know, when we do the international tournaments. But for the most part here in New York City, we just play with other straight teams. And for me, it was like, wait, so you're telling me that there's a gay rugby team that I came to practice. And I didn't know it was gay then, but then I guess. <laughs> I found out the first day of practice and it was sort of like, I don't know. It was just like, it was meant to be. It was, it's like, it's like that moment where all the stars align and it's like, okay, this is something that I, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm going to stick around for a little longer to see what happens. And from then on, it was like, you know, I was learning this sport, which was really hard because there's a bunch of rules that you you have to follow. But it was a time at the field and off the field that I was starting to develop a strong relationship and bond with the people on the team because they were so out. They were so proud of themselves. And then what I love about rugby compared to many other sports is that rugby, you know, anybody with any shape can play rugby. There's the fast, skinny one that can run the ball, but there are the burly, you know, short ones, you know, that are tend to be a little on the wider side that, you know, are the ones that, you know, have the, 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 the rough part of, of the sport, which is, you know, like tackling and whatnot. And so I love that, that idea that everybody had an opportunity, that this was not just a sport for people who look good and had apps, and that there were straight people also playing with our team. It was not just strictly LGBTQ, but it was also inclusive. So we had straight guys also play with our club. And it was sort of like seeing that relationship and that bonding that they had with each other. They were a family. They've been playing rugby since 2001. I joined in 2013. So it was a well-established club band. And then there was like, you know, an alumni team that meet like two times a year for homecoming and we will play them and it will be like a, a day of just playing rugby and having fun and then having a blast at the bar and just like killing three kegs of beer. And they became my family. They became my social life. And so everything revolved around the team. And because I felt that everything that I wanted was concentrated in that experience and that's why I stuck for most of the time in terms of like my social life so yeah and I got to play rugby which is you know pretty awesome thing to do yeah that's super cool and like that's so cool that you just accidentally stumbled on the team like that I yeah like you said it was meant to be so I know you said that you're the only gay inclusive team in New York City. So how did it feel to play against like straight people, you know, toxic masculinity is a thing. Did you feel like you had to prove yourself against them when you would play? 
I must be honest, by the time that I joined the team, the team was actually well known and established, you know, in the rugby community in the city. And so I cannot recall a time where I felt that we were being stigmatized for, you know, being a gay inclusive team. I did hear stories from when they first started, you know, in the early years of the club, having teams basically forfeit a game because they don't want to play guys who could potentially have HIV and things like that. Because in rugby, you know, you, you, you can get bruised and then they'll be bleeding and then people will be concerned about that. So I know that those big struggles with, you know, being accepted and being allowed to play and, and being treated fairly, um, most of that was, you know, by, by the time I got to the club was pretty much not resolved, but I would say it was sort of normalized. But there were still some times when we have, you know, we would go to games and then we hear a comment from like the side people on the, on the bleachers or, or there'd be guys that, you know, like get very cocky on the field. But what felt really amazing, whether we win or lose, it was the fact that we were able to hold our ground, to be able to show them that we were just as capable of playing good rugby as any other team in the city. And some of the teams actually struggle with that, but some of the teams were actually really happy and proud and they were very supportive. And some of the teams actually was mostly composed of like blue collar men from New York City. These are firefighters and cops and, you know, all these like very macho attitudes kind of thing. You know, we have there's the team where it's like concentrated a bunch of Italians from Brooklyn. And then there was the Long Island teams also that tend to be a little bit more like like that as well. But at the end of the day, we would play and then we would go have our drink up afterwards. And most of the teams, I would say, uh, most occasions, they actually showed up and they actually had fun with us. There were times where like half of the team will show up or like nobody will show up at all. But those were very few times. Um, but yeah, I think I was lucky in the sense that I got to the team at a time that the team had already established itself and earned the respect from other teams that it truly deserved. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's where our mission stops. You know, we have to continue challenging these ideas of homophobia in sports. And the way we do it is actually by playing on the field and by getting better at the sport. And that's something that happens in sports, right? It's like when you first start playing for a team, you're, you're sort of like a bench warmer. And it's not until you start proving yourself by training a lot and showing up to practice all the time and become more reliable to the team that you actually earn the respect from the people that you know you want to play with and so i think that's what our team did throughout the years and that's why are we able now to be able to enjoy you know the position that the team is at right now yeah i like how you said that i mean obviously you shouldn't have to earn the respect of people but that's unfortunately the truth about sports specifically being different in sports i guess so you mentioned that you know mission doesn't really stop here in terms of queer inclusivity within sports have you done some sort of like outreach for LGBTQ plus advocacy um, uh, through the rugby team? Yes, our team thankfully had been well-established presence in the gay community in New York City, not just in sports. We participated with the Pride Parade in New York City multiple times. We actually worked also at the concert at the pier. And when I got to play and then eventually I became president of the club, most of those contacts and those collaborations were still around. So we were able to continue engaging with them in the best way possible and then you know there were things that would show up because our team has a little bit of a history so the whole gay inclusive rugby it's like a huge organization these days 
It's managed by IGR, which is International Gay Rugby, which is under the umbrella of World Rugby, if I'm not mistaken. And so it started with the first LGBTQ gay inclusive team in London, the London Steelers. And then there were teams that were popping up in the United States. It was the San Francisco Fog and the Washington DC Renegades. So all these teams were just popping up here and there. And this was like in the late 90s. And then there was one individual, his name is Mark Bingham. He was a UC Berkeley graduate. He played rugby there. And then he started playing with the San Francisco Fog. And then he started working by Coastal. So when he would be in New York, he would meet with guys and talk about what it would be nice to have a New York City team that play rugby that's gay inclusive. And in the middle of that, so in the back and forth, Mark Bingham was actually on the flight 93 that crashed in Pennsylvania during the 9-11 attacks. So there's a nice history about who he was online. So I encourage everybody to find out who Mark Bingham was. He was a great individual. And thanks to him and, you know, the efforts of the people that wanted to carry on his legacy that, you know, our team, the Gotham Knights Rugby Club in New York City was founded. And the colors of our team was actually the navy blue and the gold were those to resemble those of UC Berkeley, he's alma mater. So there's a little bit of history there. And like I was talking about, you know, the mission that it doesn't stop with just playing rugby. You know, we work with organizations in New York City, show up to be role models for young kids. One of our team players actually got involved with this public school in Queens. And so we were able to actually create a team to teach this little kid rugby because we felt that it was better to keep them off the street and, you know, and keep them interested and involved in sports. There was this little league showing up in New York City where, you know, there were other teams that were also learning rugby along the way around the same age range. And so we were able to work with them, train them, and then bring them to the tournaments and they got to play and some of them got to win. And actually some of them got to play with the team as well. So it was a way of giving back and so how to get others, you know, interested in the sport and not necessarily being about LGBTQ, but just like a sport in general for anyone who wanted to play. I know the team recently has reviewed their mission statement and there were things that I may not be fully up to date with, but the team has definitely managed to continue to work with organizations. Every year they have the drag show where rugby players get to dress up in drag and perform. And the money that's collected from that is usually, some of it is donated uh, to a charitable organization of their choosing for that year. So, you know, we like to stay active. We want to keep people involved and we invite people to continue participating and helping the team grow and continue to deliver the mission that we have. That's amazing. This whole rugby organization is so cool. I didn't realize that there was such a big community of gay folks out there who play rugby. There's actually a huge tournament that happens every two years. It's called the Mark Marketing and Cup, which is named after the founders of our team. And the last one was actually held in Amsterdam. And I believe, I think it was like close to like 2,000 players. Wow. We had, oh yeah, God. it was like 60-something teams from around the world. And the way they create this tournament, it's like a week-long event. So, you know, you get there and then you have like the socials and then you have the opening ceremony and then you have the tournament plays, which takes about three or four days. And then you have the closing ceremony. So it's a huge event. And I believe it's like one of the largest amateur rugby events in the world. So when I joined the team in 2013, the following Bingham Cup was celebrated in Sydney, Australia in 2014. And I got to go to that. That was amazing. Then in 2016, it went back to the United States and it was actually held in Nashville. And then 2018, it was Amsterdam. 
Now the 2020 had to be postponed because of COVID, but I believe it's happening in 2022, if I'm not mistaken, and it's going to be in Ottawa in Canada. So anybody who wants to have a good time, check it out. You don't have to be a rugby player to go. You can also be on the social side of things. And, you know, it's a great, great, great opportunity and event to just, you know, have fun and go crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Just out of curiosity, I know you mentioned that, you know, the league is always updating their rules and stuff like that. How have they approached gender inclusivity for like trans and non-binary folks? That's a really good question. And what I know from recent communications that I've read that they have put out in social media is that there is still a challenge in terms of allowing trans players to play for for male teams, for instance. And it goes all the way up to the leadership, to like the World Rugby Organizations. So our team, they were definitely on the side of allowing trans players to play, of course. And so they had these like, you know, social media campaigns advocating and just creating awareness and putting the word out that, you know, we need more people to become more invested into this conversation because, you know, back then when I joined, I think the most important thing was to just tackle homophobia in sports. But now it's like the next level of advocacy will be to be more inclusive and to allow trans players to play uh, for teams that they want to play with. I don't know what has been the consensus or what the decisions have been made right now. But I know that definitely, like, our team was definitely pushing for trans players to be able to play for our team. Yeah, I think that's really important, too, obviously. I think there was, I think it was specifically for rugby a few years ago, there was some controversy surrounding whether trans people could play on the appropriate teams of rugby. I remember seeing something like that. Yeah, so what have you done with your rugby team now that you guys can't really play since it is a contact sport and it's pandemic. <laughs> right. So actually, I'm in Puerto Rico right now. So I stopped playing with the Gotham Knights when I left for medical school about three years ago. I have managed to just stay in communication with some of the team players, my friends. And I like to stay in touch, you know, with what the team is doing. I follow them on social media. And luckily for me, when I arrived to Puerto Rico, at the same time, there was a Puerto Rican who was living in the UK, who was also returning from living in the UK. Back there, he was also a rugby player, but also he became a coach, a licensed coach. So he wanted to get, you know, rugby started in Puerto Rico. And there was a a handful of guys that was already playing here, you know, from different places, because Puerto Rico, we're big on baseball, basketball, volleyball, but not rugby. And so... It has been a sort of like a concerted effort for my friend Jorge and the coach to basically build the sport from the ground up. And we sort of like have been trying to help him by engaging with people on social media and just inviting them to come and play. And for the last two years, we have been able to make strides, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And last year, we actually organized our first little tournament here in Puerto Rico, and we got guys from the British Virgin Islands to come and play, as well from the United States. And people showed up to watch us play. So it was a good feeling to know that, you know, at least we're getting some attention. And then unfortunately, of course, because of COVID, that we had to suspend all practices because rugby is such a contact sport that even when you're practicing and you're, you know, learning techniques about tackling and learning about you know, passing the ball and all these things, you know, there's a lot of contact involved. So we had to spend it for, for the time being, but hopefully we'll get to come back soon. Yeah, hopefully. And so yeah. for people who want to get involved once this pandemic is over, do you know ways that they can find these rugby teams, especially those that are gay inclusive? 
Of course. So there's, I would say 99% of all the gay rugby clubs have social media channels. So I highly encourage you to follow them, obviously, because I'm biased. Gotham Knights in New York City, they are on social media. You can find them through Gotham Rugby. Also, you can go to the website, Gotham RFC, as in rugbyfootballclub.org. And they also have a nice website that I helped also develop with all the information. If you're in the New York City area, you want to feel like you want to play rugby and learn about rugby and join an amazing community of individuals that will help you not just play good rugby, but also feel good about yourself, then I highly recommend you to reach out to them. Awesome. That sounds super cool. And I hope that this garners some interest for rugby. Apparently. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up here, do you have any closing thoughts, any social media you want to plug before we say goodbye today? My message is for everyone who's listening to this, that there's not a perfect way to get to where you want to go. My trajectory, whether it be rugby or going into medicine, has definitely been a roller coaster of, of experiences. And I think what's really important is to know exactly who you are through the process. So if you feel like you owe it to yourself to explore who you are, do it. And one of the things that I actually did in order to get to that point rather quickly was to put myself in the situations that I would find uncomfortable so that I can understand how I would react to things. So I can create my own belief system to understand both sides of the story, to be able to, to discern and to find what's really important for me, what really works for me, what I really value. And as you get to know yourself through that process, you start to realize that as you go through life, the things that come up to you, those opportunities, you have a more clear idea of what is it that resonates with you? What is it that you really want to do? And when you grab on those ideas and then you do your best, things that come out of it are really good and they're gonna help you get to where you wanna go. So what I say to everybody is trust in yourself, love yourself no matter what, that's the most important thing and surround yourself with the people that are gonna help you get to that point. And very important also is that I've always been a chunky guy and, and I sort of embracing my own truth because of it. And, you know, I stay active because I want to stay healthy, not because I want to look a certain way to please a crowd of people. And I feel that natural confidence comes out through my personality. So don't put yourself down because you don't look a certain way. And I think in our community, you know, that can be very challenging because there's a sector of a community that's really focused on looks, but there's so much more than looks. And once you get to that point where you actually understand who you are, when you are in tune with the things that you love, when you are so happy and plenty of, of the person that you have become, then nothing else will shake you down and that will get you through life no matter what. So trust in yourself, love yourself no matter what, which is the most important thing. Those are wise words. Did you have any social media that you wanted to add in there? Yes, uh, you can find me. I actually stopped using Instagram and Facebook these days. I mostly use it to read memes and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually on Twitter, and I believe my Twitter tag, I think, is pre, as in P-R-E-M-D, as in medical doctor, and then my last name, which is Henriquez, H-E-N-R-I-Q-U-E-Z. And if not, then Annabelle might help you get in touch with me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, well... Thanks so much for being on the show today, Jose. I had a wonderful time chatting with you. I think this is an amazing conversation that we had today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And, you know, I, my only wish is that 
whoever gets to listen to this gets to have a little fun, but also if there's anything you can like take from this that's gonna help you, you know, go through life, then I think my work here is done. I got to do exactly what I wanted to do. I'm so glad to hear that. Well, thank you so much. And once again, folks, that was Jose Henriquez. Thank you, Jose, for chatting with me, and thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQ STEMcast, and you can support us financially on our Patreon and our coffee. You can find the links to all of our social media at linktr.ee slash LGBTQ STEMcast. I just want to thank everyone for listening today, and we will see you on the STEMcast next week.